0: Okay, PJ? Yes, very good. Apparently that's what the Roman Emperor Emperor used to do when gladiators fought and if they were to be killed, he put his finger down. If they were to live, he put his finger up. So I'm glad you put your finger up today. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So anyway, um, it's amazingly how fast we get close to the end of the retreat but when we get close to the end of the retreat, there's still another day to go yet, a day and a bit. And I do remember, I told this story to um, the monks and the jhana-groovies who were spending the range retreat here, that there was one friend which I knew, he was a New Zealander and He ordained around about the same time as I did, but instead of ordaining in Thailand, he ordained in South Korea. And in the monasteries in South Korea, they were much more strict than the monasteries uh, of Thailand. And every year, they would do a 60-day retreat. And those retreats were not like the retreats you have here, those retreats, you do. A, I think it's a forty-five minute meditation, then a fifteen minutes a walking meditation. All together in the main hall. Another forty-five minutes sit, another fifteen minutes walk. Throughout the day until lunch time, and even at lunch time, they bring the food to you where you are sitting. Not much, but enough. And then after lunch, more meditation. Forty-five minutes sit, fifteen minute walk. You were allowed to go and see the teacher if you had any questions, but in most times the teacher there would use his Zen stick to give you the answer. Not like my interviews, my interviews are very soft, but the masters interviews there were really tough, so people had a choice between being hit with a Zen stick or just carrying on sitting with pain in their legs and their back and then in the evening, they did have a dinner in the evening in that monastery, but exactly where they were sitting again. And Then they'd maybe have some instructions, you know, where they were sitting in the same hall, and then in the evening, more med- meditation, 45 minutes sit, 15 minute walk, and then when it came to bedtime, at bedtime, people would actually lay down exactly where they were sitting. They wouldn't go anywhere, they were allowed to go to the toilet, but not that long. And that was their day. They didn't leave the meditation hall, and so this, a young monk, uh, the poor fellow, even just after one day he'd meditated before, but when it comes to meditating, forty-five minute, fifty minute, forty-five minute, fifty minute, forty-five minute, fifty minute, his legs and his back really started to hurt. But then it was the time to go to sleep, so he laid down, put a little sheet over him and went to sleep. He said it was only about four or five hours sleep, but then he fell asleep almost immediately, and then it was like only one minute, then gong, wake up, another day, 45 minutes sit, 50 minute walk, 45 minutes sit, 50 minute walk. And after even two or three days, I don't know what aches and pains you have, But this poor monk, he was really hurting. And it was only three days. Had another 57 days to go. And oh, he says, one of the toughest things he's ever done in his life. Walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting. He didn't get much peace, but he certainly got a lot of pain. (laughs) And he was one of the only Westerners there. He saw all these other... (coughs) I had his other Korean rugs sitting there so straight, not moving at all. And he had like what we call like Western pride. I'm as good as them, as they can do it, I can do it. And that pride kept him going for one week. At the end of one week, oh, it was really tough. And he gritted his teeth, he bore through the discomfort. And two weeks went past, three weeks, you know what it's like when we meet the halfway mark? We think, I've done halfway, to give up now will be, unf- uh, we'll be unfaithful to all the res- all the restraint and all the pain I've experienced so far. It must disappear sooner or later. Just as Ajahn Chah said, you'll either get better or you'll die. <laughs> so four weeks, five weeks, and the last four weeks went much lower than the first four weeks. Six weeks he managed and he was hurting all over. Seven weeks, and of course that was a big milestone. Seven weeks, only one more week to go. But that last week again, the days were much longer. It was like the clock was going much slower than the first week. And like the sun when it came out, That they were using their powers to keep the sun from moving too fast. But of course it does happen that you get the last day. And in those monasteries when they finish the retreat, not like our ones, in their monasteries when they finish their retreat, they have hot baths to soak his poor stressed limbs and a feast. They would eat in the evening, but they would really eat <laughs> at the end of the retreat. And so he started fantasizing about the hot bath. Hard oh, as you could imagine his legs and arms just soaking up that hot water and all that tightness disappearing and the meal, he could just Ling he doesn't have to eat fast, he has much more choice, he can sit on a chair and sitting on the ground. But you know those fantasies, it's amazing, they only last for one minute. <laughs> and he's back to sitting and walking, sitting and walking. But of course, he got to the last meditation, the last 45 minutes. And he thought, wow, 45 minutes, is gonna be ended. So those 45 minutes, you know, he wasn't supposed to do this, but you know, as people do, that after, you know, a little time, he opened his eyes just to see how many minutes had gone past. Only five minutes had gone. That can't be. That must be at least sort of half an hour. So he closed his eyes again, and meditated a bit longer, and opened his eyes again. Only two minutes gone. And then he started thinking, he's paranoid by this time. What if the batteries in the clock start to run out? <laughs> <laughs> what if they actually stop? <laughs> and so he said that last 45 minutes was the longest in his whole life. But of course, now this too does pass. So eventually, the Meditation Master Ring the Gong. When he rang the Gong, at the end of the last sit, he said, all, he could feel the pain, but all the pain just vanished. It was overcome by the bliss and happiness of having done it. The sixty-day retreat, very tough, and he thought he achieved it. What a wonderful thing! He didn't achieve any jhanas or deep meditation or anything, but he just could enjoy. And he felt so happy. Now it was all over." And then before he could bow to leave his seat, the master rang his bell again. He said, "Um, I've got an announcement to make before we leave. He said, this has been one of the best retreats we've ever had here and a couple of monks have asked me in their interviews whether we could extend this retreat. (laughs) And I was thinking about that last night I think that's a really good idea. So this retreat is extended for another seven days. (laughs) So carry on sitting. And this poor (laughs) New Zealand monk, as soon as he heard that, oh, he was apoplectic. He didn't have any pain in his limbs, but he was so upset about these monks. And instead of actually watching his breath or anything, he spent all the time thinking who those monks could have been. <laughs> trying to identify them. And once he had ident- he didn't really know yet, but he would find out. And then he started thinking of all the things he was going to do to them. <laughs> Not very Buddhist things. What <laughs> do you find out? And he said, that, that 45 minutes went so fast the fastest 45 minutes of the whole retreat, actually it wasn't 45 minutes, only about 30 minutes. And then the master rang his gong one more time. Retreat over, the hot baths are ready, <laughs> great food down there if you want to take the food first and the bath later or the other way around. The retreat's over. And this poor New Zealand, <laughs> what's going on? Is the retreat over or it's not over? And then the monk sitting next to him, more seniors, said, "The head monk does this every time, every year. The retreat is over." And uh, the um, Korean monk or the, the um, New Zealand monk, his name was Ham Wong, and he said, "That 45 minutes or half an hour, however long it was, that was the fastest." her time he'd ever experienced and he also, that's where he learned his insight, expectation, wanting things to happen now. That was what was causing all this incredible anger at the very end of his retreat. He said thank you to the teacher because that's where he learned the most. So do you understand that? Has this been a good retreat? So, shall we extend it for another week? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That's when we look forward and expect, and however you expect it's going to be, it's always something different. In fact, that statement is actually a statement by the Buddha in one of the suttas, and it's a Sapura Sapugala Sutta, where he said, yeah. Yang Yang Manyati Tang Tang Anyata, whatever you think it's going to be, it will always be different. When I first read that, it's such a short statement, but it was something which was really powerful, because you imagine many, many things, what's going to happen this afternoon, what are you are going to have for lunch, because sometimes that happens. You may have been in there helping out, just chop up the vegetables or something, and you think that's what you're going to have for lunch. Sometimes it happens that electricity goes off, the gas goes off, or just the the cooks decide that they've had enough and they go home and you don't have any lunch at all. A few times that's happened with the lunches here, that sometimes the electricity gets turned off. And that's wonderful because when that happens, we find that there's always somebody here who can actually just innovate. And they cook, they don't cook, but they make a salad, or they find some way of, of cooking something, and everybody helps out. And When I've actually seen that over all the years that Jana Grove has been here, that's one of the best times. There's a few times when, um, the those of you who've been coming here a long time, at the, Magno, the uh, Vincent Street Retreat Center, there was a time there when it was always um, managed by Bianca and ron, and then Ron Battersby the had been diagnosed with cancer, so he had to cancel the last moment as cook and that really put me in a bit of a spot. We had no cook, and so what should we do and we had a and Anagarika at the time, his name was Truong. You know who he is now? So. Santuti, yes. <laughs> Did you go on that retreat? Yeah. Oh great, because you can confirm that I said, look we haven't got any cooks at all, would you like to cook for the retreat? And he smiled and said, yeah, I can do that. And the nice thing about it was, that was in North Perth and just maybe 500 metres away, was his grandfather's shop. His grandfather would sell um, Asian supplies. Mostly Vietnamese, but you know, like Asian food and stuff, you know, dry food. So if I run out of any ingredients, I just go and see my granddad, and I just ask for them to give them to us for free. That's what he did. But the nicest thing about that was that uh, uh, Trung, as he was at the time, he really enjoyed that cooking. And I know that. He enjoyed the food. And also, you enjoyed watching him. Because <laughs> I remember just going past the kitchen, and all these Singaporeans were out there just to see. <laughs> and throwing out his two big woks, and he was. <laughs> he was flying away with a big happy smile on his face. And it was good food. But you know that some of the best food in Jhana Grove. And one of the times when I was very happy to invite this gentleman to actually do the cooking, and there was a hard time getting cooks for the retreat, this was for one of the BSWA retreats, and we approached this man, he said, yes, I can do that. And so he came in the morning, and it's amazing, his, his work ethic, ethic and the amount of stuff he cooked. One of the things I was really impressed with he would make pizzas every day, but he would make everything himself, including the, the flour and the base. He'd bake the, the bread on which the pizza was, was done. He was a really, really good cook. And he did that for those nine days, and you know, all for free. He didn't accept anything. And the last day in the, in the afternoon when we finished off, that you know we were saying thank you to everybody. And they said, Well, what about this gentleman? Where's he gone? Can't we say thank you to him? And I told him where he was. He was in Karna Prison Farm. He was one of the prisoners on work release. And I never told people that until the end of the retreat, because he was in there for violent rape. Was he a rapist? No. He was a person who'd done that violent rape. He was on drugs at the time. When I say that, it was a very strong statement. Of course, I trusted him, and he lived up to that trust. He said he did that once when he was young, he'll never do it again. He never has done anything bad again. He's now out in the community and just uh, happily married. Always happy to help out, but at the time, it was my way of giving a teaching to each one of you. That there you have a, if I'd have told you, you know, who that person was, and where he was staying at night time once he left here, I think most of the people have probably left at the retreat, scared. But it's one of the reasons why I say there's no such thing as a criminal. There's only a person who's done a crime. There's no such thing as a liar. It's a person who told a lie. And when you understand that, you understand a greater insight about life. That sometimes we define a person by one or two, three or four mistakes they've made in the past, big mistakes. But that doesn't define who the person is. Sometimes you can give them some try, Trust is one of the big things. You trust them, and sometimes they're surprised at your trust, and they said they would always live up to it. And that's one of the reasons why he came here he was a wonderful fellow. You know, people were working in the kitchen with him, doing some cutting up of vegetables or whatever, helping clean up afterwards, and said what a wonderful fellow he was. He was perfectly safe, I could see that but I couldn't tell you that until the very end. (laughs) So he's one of the best cooks we had over here. Totally for free. And he just taught the Dhamma by who he was. So, this is one of the reasons why you come to Jhana Grove and the teachings are in so many different areas. You know, one of the things I was going to say this morning, that when you do meditate, I mentioned this in passing, There's something which either mental health or physical health or just social health talks about a lot and that is resilience. And sometimes, you know what resilience is on the surface? Things happen to you and you can allow it just to flow off you. People say bad words about you and it goes in one ear and out the other. You don't keep anything, it's one of the reasons why even Ajahn Chah would teach me. What is it, if anyone calls you a dog, what should you do? That's right, look at your bottom. So if someone says anything bad about you, you know you're a dirty dog, they actually don't say the word dog, they use other words for dog. Still means dog, but it's just really just nasty speech. And he said if someone does that, look at your bottom to see if it's got a tail. If you haven't got a tail, you're not a dog. And he also used to tell the story of this African-American G.I. in Thailand during the time of the Vietnam War. There was a, an air base not far from Ubon Rajatani with lots of Americans there. And he said, one day an American G.I., it was a black African got in one of the cycle rickshaws and was being taken from the base into Ubon town. And on the journey, the driver passed some of his friends who were drinking whiskey at a roadside bar. And his friends you know, shouted out, where are you taking that dirty American dog to? Pointing at the American GI and the soldier was just looking around enjoying the scenery and of course the driver thought, he doesn't know the local language, so he said, I'm taking this dirty dog, see how dirty he is, and I'm gonna throw him in the, the river to have a good wash. Ha 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 ha, and they all laughed. The American didn't laugh, he just carried on looking at the scenery. Apparently he didn't understand any word of the conversation. But when they got to the destination, there the African-American soldier got out of the rickshaw and started walking away without paying. And when the driver of the rickshaw shouted, I knew some English, hey, American, money, dollars, fair. And then the American soldier turned around and they didn't speak Thai in this part of the world, it was like Isan language, like Laotian, and he spoke in perfect Laotian, dogs don't have any money, <laughs> and so he didn't have to pay. Have you ever seen a dog with any money? So of course dogs don't have to pay, and <laughs> I remember everybody enjoyed that, the, sometimes you can assume that people don't know what you're talking about, maybe in a different language. I mean I've been going to Singapore a long time, do I know the local dialect of, of Chinese? If I did I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> it's much more fun listening to what you're saying. <laughs> but anyhow, that is actually where um, you can see that people say bad things about you and you have a kind of resilience. I always say if somebody says good things about me, I can't accept that. So especially about this retreat, if you enjoyed this retreat, then I'd accept your praise. If there's any problems about this retreat, any difficulties, please tell the manager, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> but the real sense of resilience now it comes from that simile which I, I gave, but only briefly, of like the guitar string or like the string on a violin. You have to tighten that string to get a sound out of it. If it's very very tight, well let's say not just tight but stressed, under stress, then you pluck it with a plectrum or Oh, with the bow, and you get a sound out of it. The tighter it is, the higher the sound. But when you loosen that that guitar string, you get a lower pitch sound. And when you loosen it so much, there's no stress on it at all, no tension. Something hits it. It doesn't make any sound at all. it. does a beautiful, a description of what stresses. When you are relaxed and at ease, I mean, I've seen this quite a few times, maybe in the newspapers, I haven't seen it in uh, reality, but sometimes little kids fall out of the balcony, high up, and they fall on the floor, that would kill you or, or me, but this little kid, just kind of bounces, and no breaks at all. How come? the kid doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't know what's happening, so he's so relaxed, the bruises are hardly anything at all. As we see the ground coming up towards us and we'll be very scared, we'll tense up. And Because of that tension, our body doesn't have the resilience. So uh, that's one of the reasons why if ever you find you're falling out of a, a balcony, just don't look. <laughs> you know, somebody years ago, remember that, when Singapore, there was a think Malaysian Airlines, the flight got um, shot down over Ukraine or something, in Georgia, and after that, because there was a Singapore Airlines flight going right after that, and the same route, they changed the routes afterwards, but people asked me, Ajahn Brahm, please don't fly to England on Singapore Airlines. What would you do if you got shot down? If I got shot down over uh, uh, some of these places, say Afghanistan, even if I survived the plane crash, then they'd cut my throat because I was an unbeliever, I was a Buddhist. So what are you gonna do? And I figured that out very easily. So what I would do, first of all, my robe, that would be my parachute. (laughs) <laughs> it's a big robe, you know, it's about three meters wide by two and a half meters, so if you get either end, you may you know, get a few bruises, but it will really slow you down quite a lot. He said yes, but once you survived the fall, then what would you do? That would be very easy, I'd just cut a slit in the robe, I'd put it over my head, and it would be like a burka, they would know who's underneath. Was that a good idea? (laughs) I never tried it out anyway, thank goodness. But anyway, you didn't have the the fear, which means that you don't have the capacity for harm or capacity to be harmed. One of the other times when uh, I was in a very difficult situation but came out with no trouble at all, there was, a, a northeast of Thailand, a number of cases when these old passenger buses you know, would burst into, into flame. One of my friends who was a monk, he was in one of those buses and it burst into flame. He escaped with his life, but all his, uh, his yarn and his bowl were still within the bus. He had to leave them in there and they all got burnt to bits. And the bus company, because he was especially a monk, They made sure that they gave him a replacement bowl and other stuff. Because, you know, they didn't want to have bad karma. They already had enough bad karma, but they didn't want more. (laughs) So anyway. So I was in a bus once, many times, but on this occasion, old bus in the northeast of Thailand. And because you're a monk, you know, they always put you in the front seat of the bus. You know why they do that? To protect the bus and all the passengers behind from a front end collision. They said the, the monk's good karma would actually protect everyone behind. So, a few times, I mean, another bus trip, and like a big modern bus, they put me in the front. And the, I was almost right, right next to the window. And the driver was to the left. And the driver was so happy to have a monk on his bus. And I found out the reason why was because there was a movie on the TV for the bus passengers, but the driver was also watching it. <laughs> and he was going down these really busy freeways, and it was really dangerous, you know, he'd be driving around watching the movie, and it's my job to protect the bus. <laughs> Fortunately, it worked okay, but on this occasion, in the front seat of a bus, and the next to the window on the right hand side, and it was on the right hand yes, really, that's what I remember, yeah. But in Thailand they used to drive, anyway, yeah. Behind the driver? No, 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 because the, the driver was kind of next to us. And, yeah, but anyway, the, there were two monks in the front seat. I was on the, uh, the window seat, and there's another monk sitting next to me. And then a packed bus, lots of villagers there and then someone in the back shouted, fire, fire, there was smoke coming out. So the driver slammed on the brakes, the driver, once the bus had stopped, he went through the window to climb out, and the monk sitting next to me on the, the aisle seat, you know, we're not, we're not supposed to come into physical contact with the opposite gender, but he didn't mind that, This was an emergency, he pushed his way out too, and everybody was getting out. And because I didn't read the newspapers, because I didn't sort of see the TV or radio, I didn't know what was going on. So I just sat there in my seat, just really peaceful, and just not worried at all. I wasn't brave. I was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody left the bus, except for myself, just sitting in the seat calmly. and. Uh, one man at the back who was trying to find out what the source of the fire was. And he saw, saw the source of the fire, it was just a cigarette, I just made a tiny fire in the back, he put it out so easily. And he said, oh it's only a cigarette, all is safe, you can all come in now. And so all the, monks, all the passengers came in. and As every passenger came in, I hadn't moved, I just sat there all the time. And all the patches they came past me. Oh, all Oh, enlighten one. (laughs) It was totally undeserved. (laughs) But it was cool. So anyway, because of sitting in the front, you know, I did try that once. Because they do that on buses all the time. It's standard practice. So I thought, why not on Thai Airways? I was in my um, economy class seat, and I told the, <laughs> the flight attendant, they said, No, you know, aircraft do have, you know, front end collisions and stuff, and they hit the ground. You know, if you upgrade me to the front, I will keep everybody safe. <laughs> nice try, they said, but they didn't do it. Anyway, uh, back to um, how to deal with such difficulties. The, the resilience, if you are relaxed, you're not tense in your body, you find that a lot of times you fall down, or something hits you, or you have some kind of disease, or you have some kind of injury, you do repair very quickly. You've got some immune system response which is really strong, It's resilience. A lot of time that resilience is connected, not always, but a lot. To your peace of mind, how relaxed your body is. So if your body is really relaxed, you can take uh, something hitting it and you don't bruise. You can take some of an injury like you step on a nail and it just heals really quickly. If you're very really worried and concerned, of course that would make the lack of resilience and even small things hit that. It makes a big sound. The most important part of resilience is in your mind. Are you really relaxed or are you really tense? If you are really tense, one small thing and like it really resounds inside you, it's like a tight string, an ordinary thing strikes it. It might not usually affect most people, but for you, you're so tight and tense, small thing hits the mind. And it really makes a big sound. That's one of the reasons why one of the things that you will grow on a retreat like this is that resilience. One of the great examples of resilience I always remember was, you know, Ajahn Char's second monk, Ajahn Liam. And I remember him, he would always work so hard. And When he became the boss monk, the abbot after Ajahn Chah passed away, I remember asking him one day, it was a a common question, you know, once I became a head monk, I was just being a bit sort of above myself, I just asked him, well you know, I've got some monks I have to train, what about your monks? How do you train your monks? Are they easy to train? He said, yeah, really easy to train. How do you do that? said, oh easy. When the monks go to the left, I let them go to the left. When they go to the right, I let them go to the right. That's why they're so easy to train. (laughs) And he laughed. And I thought, there's a lot of wisdom behind that. How can you let the monks go to the left and then let the monks go to the right? Aren't you supposed to tell them and discipline them and tell them what to do? He said, no. He teaches them. It's like the story of the, the emperor, the general in the imperial army who had the best discipline. You remember that story. That meant a lot to me when I read that. The emperor asked this general, why is it that all your soldiers under your command always follow your orders? And other generals, sometimes some of those soldiers disobey them. How come your soldiers are always obedient? And the General said, because Your Majesty, I only tell my soldiers to do what they want to do. That's why they always follow orders. Have I ever told you to do something you don't want to do? And yet you always come here for the meditation, you keep quiet, you know, they all keep the precepts as best you can. So how come you are so well disciplined when I don't tell you off? And the answer was, said the general, he spends more time inspiring his soldiers. Now in an army, you want to inspire your soldiers by saying "Now, this is for our, our culture, our traditions, our wives and children, you know, our parents and grandparents to safeguard them. And training hard is very good for your health. And being courageous, you're giving sometimes your life up because of the, for the sake and happiness of others. And he was such an immense motivator, this general, that when it came time to get up in the morning, half the soldiers were already up. When it came to do the training, oh, they really gave it everything they, they wanted. They wanted to actually to be good soldiers. And when it came into the battles, they realized that, you know, it's for their, their friends and their loved ones that if it meant that they got wounded or even killed, they were willing to do that because they had been, I'll change the word from motivated, brainwashed by their general. This is what they wanted to do. It's called conditioning. It's one of the reasons why also that, you know, tomorrow is our last day and Sunday is our Katina Day. This is what the time when we, we collect the most donations to keep the monasteries going. And sometimes it's very difficult, especially for Bhikkhuni monasteries, to get enough donations. But it reminds me of the story of the monk who was having such a difficult time raising enough donations for his new monastery. So, he went to see a senior monk. said, it look, it's easy. Same thing happened to me, he said, when I first started the monastery. It was so hard to raise donations, but I found the best way. And I advise you to do the same. Next time you give a talk, make sure all the windows are closed, turn on the aircon so it's especially hot, and start giving a boring talk. That was easy for this monk. So he started giving a boring talk with all the windows closed, it was stuffy, it was hot. And he said, when your um, disciples in the hall start to fall asleep, before they fall asleep, take out your watch, Swing it backwards and forwards. And so say, so be mindful of the watch. It's a mindfulness exercise. And then after a while they'll all be hypnotized. And once they're hypnotized, then you give them the instructions. As you go out, no coins in the box, no fives, tens or twenties, <laughs> only fifties <50s> and hundreds. <laughs> he said, I can't do that, that's fraud. No, it's not fraud, it's encouraging good karma. (laughs) (laughs) So he was desperate, so he tried that. It really worked. His donation box was stuffed with $50 and $100 notes. He really cleaned up that day. But he was smart enough, he couldn't do that next week, otherwise people would soon suss him out. They'd discover. And so he waited for a couple of weeks until he needed some more money, and he tried the same again. He closed all the windows, turned up the heat in the room, gave a boring sermon and then he got out of his watch and when they were just about to be hypnotised, he dropped his watch. And he was so surprised, he said an expletive, he said, oh shit, <laughs> and that's what they did. It took him a couple of weeks to <laughs> clean out the hole. <laughs> that was the cover. <laughs> so you say, <see, laughs> we don't do that <laughs> here. <laughs> but we you know with the resilience. And resilience doesn't mean you try and exploit people, or you, you, know, you try and get what you want. You have this beautiful sense of well, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, if you really relax, it doesn't really matter what happens. And there's a few times, a few times, especially in the early days here or in Thailand or in other places, sometimes you don't get a meal that day simply because you know, something happens. I remember many times, that it's not you choose this, there was uh, one person who was having a A very difficult time. She just stabbed her mother in law that morning, and she was running away to the airport to try and escape. She had a sort of breakdown. And, you know, she was a Thai Buddhist, kind of Buddhist, and so I went to the airport to try and talk her out of just doing any more harm. And, you know, they trusted the monk, so I managed to talk her into going to the hospital. She was very paranoid in the hospital, but she did get admitted for a day, and at the end of the day, she came out again. and her mother-in-law was amazing. Her mother-in-law had to get, go in the hospital, get many stitches. But you know, she forgave her daughter. It was just a, like a cultural problem for her coming from an Asian cult- culture. Her English wasn't that good, and you know, she eventually just uh, settled down in that relationship in that marriage. She still comes to the temple, now she's an elderly lady. But anyway, I miss my lunch for that day. So there are times when you do miss your lunch, but I was very happy to miss my lunch because, you know, you could actually do something. I make up for it these days. (laughs) You could actually help somebody. You have kind of resilience. You don't have to eat every day. Do you? Do you want to test it out? (laughs) No, no, you don't want to test it out, (laughs) I have lunch today. So you survive easy enough. So when we have that sort of resilience, not that fear, then you can find that all these unpleasant things which may happen to you, they don't make much of an effect on you. Because you're at ease, you're relaxed. There are things like somebody dying in your family. If you're very, very tense and tight, you find that's too much you can break down. If you're at ease and relaxed, even if you're not quite sure what's going to happen, where they're going, when you're relaxed and at ease, you can actually take those things with much more uh, stability. It's one of the reasons why that some of the monks and nuns, I've told these stories, they go and see their relations when their relations are very sick and dying. And when they do die, that's when the monks or the nuns, having them around, and just this nice stable presence, uh, kind, wise, it calms everybody else down. And it's a great resource to have in your family. You know, if it's not sort of a relation, sometimes you just can't get there. But if it is a relation, of course they will go to the next available flight to help out. And that's a huge resource for everybody. So this is one of the reasons why when we have that resilience, what really affect other people, hardly affects us at all. And sometimes people think, are you cold? You're not cold. Are you not empath- em- empathetic? Is that, is that right, empathic? Whatever, it's, it is you have empathy, but you also have the wisdom and the kindness to do the very best for the people you are with and for others without sort of overreacting. When we can do things like that, our resilience is so great that whether it's in uh, an office, at work, uh, in the family, in the community, wherever you are, you tend to be someone who can stabilise people's emotions. And that's a huge gift. It's not just giving a talk, it's actually who you are. That's one of the reasons why that simile which I, it's one of my popular similes right now, that's of the the royal elephant and the the person who uh, would go and sit no, the royal elephant who became very bad natured and then one of the, the king's vets, doctors couldn't find out what was wrong with the royal elephant, But then eventually this um, minister went there and they found out the reason why the elephant was very sick, was badly behaved was because a, a group of bad people was were meeting behind the elephant store. And even though the, this was actually a story, I've adapted it obviously, you know, from the Dhammapada, association with the wise is a great benefit, association with the fools is a danger. And even though the elephant can't understand human language, just listening to the bad speech of this bandits who met behind the stall, made it into a bad elephant. But after a while, staying with good people, because after the, At the bandits were arrested, it was replaced by monks and nuns who would meditate there, talk dharma there, be kind there. And that meant that the elephant changed back to being a good elephant. I often say that's one of the reasons why people come and stay at monasteries or uh, the nuns' monastery. Sometimes you send your your husband to stay at the monk's monastery because he's a bit out of control. And then being with very kind monks, he soon settles down. And he comes back, it's like sending in your car to be tuned. <laughs> they come back and they run much better. Or he sends some, some of your friends or maybe your wife to the nuns monastery. And she comes back and she's, her speech is just so much better when she's hung out with the nuns for a while. But you know, there's one problem with that. And that is because the monks have been hanging out with your husbands for a while. Sometimes the monks get a bit <laughs> bad speech. Anyway, um, that was a beautiful story you know, from the Buddha. It's one of the reasons some of those stories are just powerful. Somebody reminded me. It was an email from uh, uh, one of our, our volunteers in town saying there's a gentleman, there's an old school psychologist over in the United States somewhere and what got him through a lot of difficulty was the old story of the donkey who fell in the well. Remember that story? All of you? Okay, I'm going to tell it anyway. (laughs) So once upon a time, a donkey was walking in the forest, minding his own business, a very really ordinary donkey, but because he wasn't mindful, he'd never been to the Buddhist center and done any retreats, his mindfulness was not that strong, so he fell into this well, this big open hole in the middle of the jungle. Fortunately, it was a dry well. So when he got to the bottom of the well, he didn't drown, he was a bit bruised, but, uh, he couldn't get out he was stuck in the bottom of the well and the walls were so steep he couldn't sort of climb them so the only thing he could do was to try and shout for help Eeyore! eo, eo. that's donkey speak for help <laughs> do you believe me? <laughs> can you speak donkey? <laughs> anyway eo, eo, eo. He was stuck in the bottom of the well and of course being in the bottom of the well that subdues your sound, he was just still shouting for over an hour. <laughs> Getting hoarse instead of being a donkey, ah. and no it's not, I don't laugh at that silly thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then this, this farmer came past and he heard the sound of the bottom of the well, he looked out into the bottom of the well the bottom of the well is a stupid donkey. He never liked donkeys, this farmer. But he also realized that was a dangerous hazard. You know, people could be walking past and fall in, or maybe some of his cows or goats could fall in. So he decided to, in his language, to kill two birds with one stone. In Buddhist language we say to cut two carrots with the same knife. <laughs> so. So he decided to fill the hole in with dirt, with a donkey at the bottom. He could actually bury the donkey alive and also fill up the well, it's really mean and cruel. So anyway, he got a big spade and he started digging earth and putting the earth in the bottom of the well. And When the donkey realized what was going on, he was being buried alive. The donkey really got his voice back Eo 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 trying to stop the man from killing him. But the man didn't care, he just kept on putting the earth into the well. And after a while the donkey stopped shouting. The man thought he'd already buried that donkey. So he just kept on shoveling earth. And you couldn't actually see what was really going on in the bottom of the well. What was really going on, I'll just move to the front of this to show you. (coughs) What was really going on? Every shovel of earth which went on the donkey's back, he shook it off, stamped it in, and that donkey grew a centimetre higher every time another shovel full of earth, shake it off, stamp it in and the donkey was another millimetre higher. And of course the farmer never realised what was going on, he was busy shoveling the earth. He never noticed a pair of donkey ears appearing above the top of the well. The donkey kept quiet at this point. Never saw the donkey's head appear on the bottom well, kept on shoveling the earth. <laughs> and he never saw when the donkey was close enough to the top of the well he could jump out. And <laughs> and he bit the donkey on the bottom. <laughs> no, he couldn't do that, could he? <laughs> Thank you, be that was a test of your awareness. <laughs> The donkey bit the man on the bottom (laughs) (laughs) just so he could always remember just what a sore ass is like (laughs) (laughs) and ran away. (laughs) And the moral of that story is, if somebody abuses you, says wrong things about you, don't shout out, shake it off, stamp it in and you get a bit higher every time. And this guy of the United States, he said in his email, I said, that was a story which meant the most to him. But I must admit, sometimes you tell those stories, it doesn't work. Because you know once I told that story, there's one lady from Sri Lanka here, to President Rajapaksa, he really liked it. You never tell that to a politician, otherwise they don't take any criticism. They just shrug it off, <laughs> stab it in and carry on going. And anyway, that's a nice way to get your resilience in life. Instead of worrying about what's happening, there's always something you can do. I've always found that the case, you just sit down, wait, and there's always a bus comes from somewhere. It's like being in the crossroads of life. You sit down at the crossroads and wait, and when you see the bus coming, the nice thing about buses, they have their destinations on the front. So you know exactly where it's going to lead. And so you take the bus which you think is going to go to the destination you wish. So you don't always have to keep on going and make decisions all the time. Sometimes one of the best decisions is just to pause, to wait until the right decision comes up and you will know it. Okay, that's the talk. I finished five minutes early. That's not very good, is it? Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Very good. <laughs> you know sometimes when you start these talks and you say sadhu, 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 people think you're crazy, but after a week they know you're crazy. <laughs> no, you just a happy monk.